0: and that we have no, like, recording issues. Okay. Okay. So, if you are new with us tonight, or if you haven't been maybe in the last week, we are kind of trekking through 2 Corinthians. Um, And I've been studying 2 Corinthians, like, I don't know, for a little while. Um, I knew we were going to be doing that this year, and so I've been super excited about that. And even as I've been studying it, and even as I've been here like every week that we've been teaching so far, when I got to the text this week to start kind of breaking it down and, and get ready to teach it to you guys, I found myself, there's just several points that I was like, okay, which letter is Paul talking about? And which visit is he talking about? There's just so much that's here. And historical context is always important, always. But when you have a book like Second Corinthians it's it's almost like it's it's even more important because so much of what Paul is doing in Second Corinthians is referencing his relationship with Corinth and is referencing what happened in First Corinthians um, and what happened in the other letters that we know exists, but we don't have. And so before we jump into the text tonight, I kind of want to just spend a few minutes walking through, um, the chronological order of what happened in his relationship with the Corinthians, just so that we can kind of, I'm, I'm a really visual person. So just to kind of get that timeline and, and be able to kind of reference that and know what we're talking about. Um, Drew's been drawing maps for us, which is amazing and super helpful. And I can't even draw a stick figure. So timelines, what you're getting with me, Um, But I think I think it will be helpful. So, um, okay, so we know that um, Paul goes initially to Corinth. If you read Acts eighteen, um, you're going to see his missionary journey to Corinth. Actually, I would really encourage you, especially as we're studying Second Corinthians. Go check out Acts, like 17 through 19. Read, like, kind of what is going on in the missionary journey, in Paul's journey, um, and in the advancement of the gospel at that time and in his travels, just to get a better understanding. So, But we know um, he, he goes here. It's about 50 to 52 A.D., and we'll put Acts 18 up there. Okay, so this is when he first gets to Corinth. Um, And and the church is planted there. And we know that Paul stays there about 18 months. Okay, so he is discipling people and still trying to win the lost over in Corinth. Um, That's kind of what is happening there. And then we know that we have what is known as letter A right here. And that is to us a lost letter. We know that we have this letter because when Paul goes on to write 1 Corinthians, which we do have, he references it. And that's how we're able to kind of pull and piece a lot of these things together is in First and Second Corinthians, Paul referencing stuff. And so we're able to kind of know that some of these things happened. But if you don't have a visual of that, it can be kind of hard to track with what he's talking about, because again, it's a lost letter. So we have letter A, um, and he actually tells in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, he says, I wrote to you, um, and he's talking about this letter here, he wrote to them to address things like sexual immorality, and a lot of just the stuff that the the Corinthian church was dealing with at that time. Um, And so likely what happened is they sent a letter back to Paul in response or with questions, um, And Paul also gets a report. All we know is that he gets this report from Chloe's people. um, And basically, 1 Corinthians 1.11 says that he's gotten this report from Chloe's people that things are still not well in Corinth. Um, And so he goes ahead and he sends letter B, which we know as 1 Corinthians. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians, in letter B, he references when Timothy comes to you, Timothy, when Timothy comes to you, this is what you're supposed to do and this is how you're supposed to treat him. And so we're not exactly positive, but from what we can kind of gather, somewhere in here, Paul sends Timothy. Now, whether, whether Timothy beats 1 Corinthians to cor- Corinth or not, um, is not clear, but he is coming. Um, he's also not carrying the letter. It's likely that Titus was carrying the letter. So probably what happened is this, this first letter is sent. Um, maybe when the response comes from Corinth, Timothy is dispatched to go, hey, go kind of handle some of this stuff. You need to go. You need to deal with what's happening. After that is probably when Paul gets this other report from Chloe's people, which I love that. Who are Chloe's people, by the way? But he gets this report from Chloe's people. And so um, in in reference to that, like he is going to send... 1 Corinthians and this letter B. And somewhere in there, Timothy is coming and he's arriving. Um, maybe Maybe Timothy beats that letter there or maybe he doesn't. After that, though, we have Paul visiting, which is known as the second visit or the painful visit. Okay? If you were with us last week, this was kind of our text, was beginning to talk about this. Um, and Drew referenced that a lot, that this was a very painful visit. And essentially, we're dealing with all kinds of issues in Corinth. Um, there's all kinds of sexual immorality. There's, I won't rehash everything. We have an intro Um, to 2 Corinthians. So if you missed that, you can go check that out on the podcast. But there's a ton going on there. There's a lot of sin that's just running rampant and a lot of basically people in the church with influence um, who do not love Jesus or are being led astray and are using their influence in a horrible way. And so Paul is trying to fight all of this um, to lead the Corinthians back to holiness. So what we can kind of gather is at some point in this second visit, this painful visit, Um, there was a man of prominent standing in the community and in the church. He was probably pretty wealthy. Um, And basically, he publicly stands up and denounces Paul's authority as an apostle and says, like, no, like, we're not going to follow you. We're not going to listen to you. You're wrong, and you have no authority here. Um, And if you were with us last week, we learned that most of the church did not feel that way. But when this happened, there was dead silence. It appears that not a single person stood up. Um, for Paul or to this man, they just kind of let this happen. Um, And so at that point, it ends on this horrible note. And if you were with us last week, you know that we kind of talked about this idea of Paul saying, I let my yes be yes and my no be no, because initially he had promised the Corinthians this extra visit, right? It was going to be right here. But instead of that extra visit, we have... A letter in its place, letter C, which is known as the tearful letter, and it's lost to us. Letter A and letter C we don't have, um, but Paul references it, so we know that it exists. But essentially, what happened is that this was so, um, so bad, so painful, among everything else. Like when you look at the Corinthian history, like everything else that's happened. Paul gets to this place where he does not think, um, I believe he does not think that the, the Corinthians can survive another visit as bad as this one. Um, and so he's in this place where he has to make this decision because on the one hand, um, he cannot just leave the church uh, in its sin. And on the other hand, he, you know, he, he, he's a father with his kids, right? And so he, he, he is after, um, the relationship as well. And so instead of this other visit, he sends what's known as the tearful letter. Um, and at that point, um, in this letter, we know, cause Paul's going to tell us, even as we get into our text tonight, you're going to see, but Paul's going to tell them how much he loves them. Um, and he's going to call them to repentance and he's going to tell them kind of what they need to do. Um, and when Paul writes this, he's in Ephesus. Okay. At that point. But, a riot breaks out in Ephesus, and um, essentially Paul has to flee to Macedonia. He writes this letter when he's in Ephesus, and he sends it with Titus, but Titus doesn't know that Paul has left Ephesus and is now in Macedonia. So, I mean, if you can imagine, I don't know if this is a good analogy, breaking up with, you know, you're, you're sending something out there, like is this relationship going to continue or what's going to be the outcome Paul's in all this turmoil. He's there. Ephesus is in difficulty, and so um, he's he's concerned about them, and there's um, just a lot happening there. And then now he's just uh, sitting there in Macedonia having to wait. Okay, so that, that is where he's at. But then Titus brings the good news that, guess what? They got your letter. And they do have some questions, but they've repented. They have done what you said that they needed to do um, they're they're ready to act they're they're ready to um, make this right and so it's out of his joy after receiving that that Paul writes second Corinthians. So that's where we're at as we walk through all of our all of our texts. That is a lot of what's going on. Um, so again, they do have questions. They've, they've responded well, but they do have questions. And so kind of, as we hit on last week, Paul, in a way, he is writing this letter out of deep joy and also a little bit like things are still rocky. So there's some things that have to be worked out. There's some things that have to be smoothed over. Some questions have to be answered. Um, and so he is a little bit, um, on trial, so to speak, and and a lot of this is going to be, our text tonight is going to be his defense for sending this letter instead of making that a visit. So, we've got the background, let's jump into the text. I need a reader. Somebody? Anybody? Becca? Okay. So, 2 Corinthians 1, we're going to start, read 23 and 24. Okay, so he says right off the bat, I call God to witness against me. Earlier in the same chapter in verse 12, he calls his own conscience to witness against him. And now he's calling God to witness against him. You know, it's the interesting thing about a written word. You know, when you are able to like sit and look somebody in the eye, you're able to read their body language and hear their tone of voice and you can gauge sincerity and you can gauge genuineness and Paul doesn't have any of that and so you're going to see in this section of text there is a whole lot of um, visual language and a lot of him trying to express um, just his genuineness and really he's bearing his soul and his heart before them so he says I call God to witness against me like that's how far I'm willing to go I want you to know that what I'm saying is the absolute truth Um, it was to spare them that he doesn't visit um, and even in, even in like him saying it was to spare you, it's a little bit implied that Paul does have the authority to not spare them, but he wants to spare them. Um, and he, so he refrains. Um, and then he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Um, and what he's saying there is that um, basically in contrast to what some of you have been saying about me or what some of you think, I in no way want to control your thinking other than to bring it in line with Jesus Christ. That's it. And he doesn't want to force them into this. I believe that's a huge part of why he sends this letter. He doesn't want to just show up and heavy-handed force them into what he believes they need to do. No, he wants them to make that decision for themselves. He wants them to respond to the truth of the gospel um, and to have truly repentant hearts. He's not going to lord anything over them, but what he is going to do is work with them together for their joy. So I am going to disciple you. I am going to come alongside you. I am going to do this together with you. Um, But then it's interesting, he ends that section with um, the statement that for you stand firm. In your faith. Um, And another translation says, but it is by faith you stand. And so, what he's doing when he uses that phrase is he is putting the emphasis of responsibility on Corinth and on the Corinthian church and saying, it's by your faith that you stand. This is your decision, your decision to follow Jesus, your decision to be obedient. And so he is letting them know that, yes, like as an apostle, there is some authority that he has, but ultimately their relationship with God, he's, he's going to work with them and do everything that he can. But in the end, it's up to them to do what is right. And it's up to them to take responsibility for their actions and to make the right decisions. Okay. Read verse one and verse two of chapter two. Okay, so again, it really does seem that he, he has made up his mind that this cannot be a visit. Um, it, he, he is not going to, um, he doesn't want to do something, I believe, that is going to danger uh, their relationship with him. Um, further discipline to them would bring grief to them and, and at this point would also destroy their ability to bring him the joy that would be appropriate for a church church an apostle relationship. So he's even mourning a little bit here as he says some of this, that, um, that basically who, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained. And so this is not how this relationship should be. It's not supposed to look this way. Yes, sometimes discipline is necessary, but I long for there to be um, joy between us, joy between me and joy between this church. Okay, read verses three and four, please. Okay, so he really is torn. We've talked about that a little bit. But, I mean, just even thinking about Paul as an apostle and the way that he is caring for this church, right, um, that, that he is kind of, I mean, he's between a rock and a hard place when he sends this initial letter because he loves this church so dearly. He does not want to damage the relationship past the point of repair. Um, and also there is just so much that has been going on Um, in terms of unholiness and just in terms of uproar. And they, they need so much guidance. Um, but above all, like he is taking a step back and I do, I think about like my relationship with my kids, you know, of how, um, no child is, is the same. I parent them differently. Um, and at the end of the day, yes, I could Lord things over them. I could force issues. I could, at this point, my kids are two and four, right? So I'm bigger. So I could make them obey me. It won't always, that won't always be the case. Um, but I don't want to. Like I really don't want to. I want that relationship where you know I can correct them, and they're going to receive that guidance. Um, you know, maybe maybe not joyfully at first, but that they're going to come around to that. And at the end of the day, it doesn't do me any good as a parent to have them towing the line if they hate me, um, or at the loss of their relationship. Um, and yet, and yet, ultimately. Like Paul's going to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to stewarding the gospel and faithful to the church, um, and so that's where he's at when he makes up his mind not to make another painful visit. But he's going to give them this chance. Of, I'm going to give you this chance to respond, um, and this is the best that I've got. So um, the Corinthians are they're they're questioning that though. Um, they are. Did you? I'm so sorry. Did you read through four? You did, okay, yes. So they are questioning that, and they're basically, they are, so they've obeyed, okay, but at this point, they are also wondering, and we saw some in the text last week where it was um, a lot of that, My I let my yes be yes and my no be no, um, because there's a little bit of wondering. Basically, like, why did he say that he was going to do this and then he didn't? And they're just tossing up a lot of different opinions as to why that might be. Um, is he afraid of being humiliated again? Or is he trying to get back at us? Is he mad at us? Does he have some kind of secret hidden motive? Like, what is really going on here? Um, and so he is letting them know, as as with everything that he possibly can, um, that he absolutely loves them. And the reason that he wrote to them... Um, was like for their ultimate good and for their ultimate benefit and that the joy would be um, mutual, that that would flow between them. Um, And it's because of the abundant love that he has for them. And so he's letting them know all these things. I loved this quote. Um, I just thought it was so, I I would hope that this would be the heart of every pastor. But the quote says that discipline is never painless for the one who delivers it or the one who receives it. Um, Godly pastors weep within themselves, Before making others weep, Paul is neither iron-hearted, nor iron-handed. His love for them, motivated by actions entirely. If they were grieved, he leaves no doubt that he was grieved more. Godly pastors weep within themselves before making others weep. I think that is exactly what is happening here, Um, and he's using a lot of like strong words when he says much affliction, much affliction and anguish of heart, um, and many tears. And so he's doing everything he possibly can to let them know that it wasn't to trick you. I wasn't, you know, thinking one thing, saying another, or going back on my word. Um, I did this because I want to save the relationship. I did this because I want you to choose the right thing. And I did this because I love you um, and ultimately because I love Jesus and I love his church. Okay, go ahead and read verse 5 through 8, please, Becca. Through eight okay. The punishment inflicted on an unhand by the majority is sufficient. Thou instead you ought to forgive and comfort him, that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to to reaffirm your love for him. Okay. So, Paul, at this point, Paul does not need to give a ton of details. Obviously, the Corinthians know what is going on, right? They're very aware of what has happened. But he is, again, he's in a little bit of a sticky spot because I guarantee you, Titus brings the good news, and clearly this man has repented, but the fact that Paul is worried that he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, I guarantee you, Titus is bringing the news, and also, like, Bro, like, I'm worried about this dude. They did what you said. Like, they have, you know, punished this man. Um, Everybody's standing up for you. Clearly, this man has repented. Um, And at this point, Paul is worried that he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And yet... Paul also kind of flips this on its head a little bit because what he wants to do is make sure without causing them to, like, get more mad and, like, jump on this guy anymore. But he wants to make sure that they understand the bigger picture of the church. So he says, basically, um, he caused me pain. Yes, he did this to me, um, but not to put it too severely. He did it to all of you, and you need to understand that he did this to the church. He's causing, causing division in the church. Um, he's riling things up, there's unforgiveness, there's divisiveness, Um, and so don't think that you're doing me a favor by forgiving him. Um, Yes, that was the right thing to do, but ultimately this guy is sinning against God and against God's church, and so we need to make sure that we have a handle on that and that they are grasping that this wasn't just Paul getting his feelings hurt. Um, that is absolutely not what's going on here. Um, but it's amazing to me, too. Like, Paul, um, he doesn't go further into detail. He doesn't He doesn't rehash what happened. He's doing everything he can, even though this, think about it, this man is the root cause of a lot of what's going on now and all this that Paul is having to deal with. Um, but he just shows him grace and love because this man has repented. Um, and so um, he is not, um, he is not, taking this as, you know, a step farther of saying um, we, you know, we need to continue punishment. He is giving the Corinthians this ultimate view of this is, you know, he's sinned against the church. You need to understand the reality of that and the, the magnitude of that. And yet at the same time, he's repentant. And I want you to welcome him in with open arms. Um, and it's actually cool, the verb there, um, comfort, it includes different activities. So they should deal benevolently with this man. They, su- they should support him. And they should encourage him um, there to do those things and, and to welcome him back completely and to reaffirm their love for him. Okay, Becca, read verse 9. So he's telling them, this part of why he wrote, he wanted the Corinthians to take responsibility for themselves, for their faith, and for their obedience. He didn't want to force them into Anything, but he wants to give them the opportunity to obey and to do what is right. And his purpose all along is reconciliation and that they would faithfully steward the gospel um, and that they that they would have unity in their church um, and that they would be committed to a life of holiness. And, and when he says um, to know whether you are obedient in everything, um, some of that is basically... Again, Paul doesn't need them to obey him. He's not on a power trip here, Um, but it is that kind of that show of good faith that yes, you are our apostle. Yes, we are committed to a life of sanctification, and we are committed to doing what we need to do, even when it's hard. And so, there's kind of some of that um, that proof that you know they they do love and accept Paul as their apostle and as the authority in their life. Um, and again, not because Paul needs to be obeyed. He's, he is jealous for, um, for the sake of Jesus being first in their life and for the sake of the gospel that it would continue to advance. Okay, go ahead and read 10 and 11, please. Okay, so that phrase there, Paul forgives in the presence of Christ, it's literally translated in the face of Christ, that he forgives them in the face of Christ. Um, And it may be that when he's saying that, one of two things, he may be thinking in light of everything that Jesus has done for me and forgiven me of on the cross, like I'm going to forgive Um, but it's more likely that what he's actually saying is, I forgive in the presence of Christ, Um, helping them to remember that Jesus is real and he is a present witness to everything that is going on. And he is nodding in approval um, at the forgiveness of this and at the unity of the church and the church coming together. Um, So that's likely what he's talking about when he says, in the face of Christ. Um, And the other thing he points out is he forgives for the sake of the church. Um, That that in other words, Satan would have been at an advantage and was at an advantage when there is unforgiveness um, growing, when there is dissension and divisiveness growing in the church. Um, The whole entire focus is turned inward, right? It is not looking to Jesus in the way that we should live our life and in the way that we should follow him. It's not looking to Jesus for um, sanctification and and gospel-centered living or being on mission and bringing a lost world to Christ. It's focused on me, how I'm hurt, what's happening, what I'm going to do to get back at them, or how I'm going to nurse this grudge. Um, And nothing about that is Jesus-centered. And so Paul gives us this picture of laying down his rights um, in order that the the gospel would continue. And it's a pretty cool thing. Um, We are going to take a quick two-minute break. And then uh, Brother Anthony is going to be with us for the second half.
1: Okay, humans, um, we had some technical difficulties on Thursday, and so, um, my section was not recorded, and so I'm here at my apartment, um, with the air conditioning, and some water, and my laptop, and all my roommates are gone, and the doors are locked, so I can preach it how I feel it, and so this is going to be a powerful time if the Lord is willing, um, in this section of mine, in this application section, I was drawn to the text in second uh, corinthians one twenty four uh, where uh, Paul says, "I am not lording this over your faith I'm not trying to lord this over your faith, but I am wanting to be a worker for your joy and might be because this year uh, I have been listening to a lot of John Piper I didn't listen to him before a lot, but I've been listening to a lot of John Piper, and if you listen to John Piper often, you'll know that there are two themes that are throughout all of his work, all of his literature, all of his sermons. Uh, It's probably, he says each word 86 times in his sermons, and that is the word glory, the glory of God, and joy, the joy that we should have in God. And so, I guess it's because of a Pavlovian response uh, put in me by John Piper, but as I was reading through this text and trying to see what I feel like the Lord would have us to learn from this text, uh, I kind of zeroed in on this passage talking about being a worker for the joy of a believer, the joy of a Christian person. And um, before, I want to talk about what I think Second Corinthians is describing as Uh, working for our joy, I want to ask the question, what do we usually think of when we think of working for a person's joy? Uh, I think of kind of the... It's not completely modern, but it was definitely popularized in the modern age that to work for someone's joy is to work for the stabilization of a person's physical existence. So the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is that they... Uh, don't have money or don't have food or don't have education. And so we need to come in with the Salvation Army and we need to come in with the Peace Corps and we need to come in with missions and all of these philanthropic works to help people who, who are in need because that is what it means to work for a person's joy. How can you be happy if you don't have clothes? How can you be happy if you don't have food? Fascinatingly enough is that when people, as People are doing studies on these cultures and comparing them to what we would call more advanced civilizations. They're finding that people who are more, who have less stuff, actually tend to be happier than the nations that are more wealthy. There are uh, less. There's a less percentage of suicide in places that have less, which is very interesting. Not only is that disparity between happiness and physical provision um, not really a direct connection, but ultimately, if you satisfy a person's physical needs without giving them Jesus, um, a missionary by the name of Austin Gagno, who had come to uh, Sunnybrook over the summer, he was at a lot of the camps that we did, um, he said that um, if you help someone's physical needs, but don't tell them about Jesus, it's just cruel. And I'm reminded of the passage in John 6 that the Lord Jesus himself says. He says, don't work for the bread that perishes, but work for the bread that doesn't perish. And ultimately, he he terminates that reality in him, that he is the bread of life and so and so working for someone's joy in this context and really in the Bible is not working for sustaining someone's physical needs though it's helpful the Bible does tell us about helping the poor and the needy and defending the orphan and the widow and so it's not that there is nothing there's nothing to be done in the way of helping someone's physical needs it's just not the primary or most important means of working for someone's joy Another way that's very popular, probably uh, equal in popularity in our culture is this concept of, of unrestrained, um, uninhibited uh, acceptance at all costs. Because you would never, once again, the absolute worst thing in a person's life could be you telling a person that they cannot fulfill their desires and I don't have to go down a catena of the issues with which our culture is uh, struggling, in which the church is embattled. But there are lots of people, uh, maybe even people who are listening to this recording, maybe people who go to our church, maybe if you you don't go to Sunnybrook, people who go to your church, who just have a hard time dealing with someone who has joy that they seem to find in things that the Bible says uh, that actually the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that. Uh, Actually, if you do those things, if you walk in those practices, you will not see the kingdom of God. Uh, And and people have a hard time and, and they think that to work for someone's joy is to make sure that no one ever hurts your feelings and no one ever challenges your lifestyle. And that is obviously, especially when you consider the church that Paul is dealing with, that is obviously not Paul's understanding of, um, of of what it means to work for a person's joy, Paul in the previous chap, not previous chapter, in the previous epistle. Well, actually, it was two epistles ago uh, because of the missing epistle. But in First Corinthians, Paul thinks that working for someone's joy is actually putting them out of the church so that they might be saved in the day of the Lord. But he didn't. His he, he didn't. It was a difficult thing for the person who was put out of the church in 1st Corinthians 5 I'm sure that that didn't make him very happy to be for him to be told that he can't sleep with his stepmom but it was ultimately for his joy and so so working for a person's joy is not necessarily uh to accept unconditionally everything a person wants. Because, as you know, if you know the Scriptures well, you'll know that the Bible says that the heart is deceptive and exceedingly wicked above all things. And so, um, that's just a foreign concept of working for someone's joy in the church. And so, what is uh, Paul's conception of working for someone's joy? And as I read Second Corinthians, this section, I think that what Paul is is getting at and working for someone's joy is working for the unity of the church. Um, The the church at Corinth is a very difficult church. Um, Paul has to talk about schisms in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, He's dealing with schisms in 2 Corinthians. And later on, after the death of the apostles, uh, the church in Rome, the elders in Rome, have to write an epistle to the church at Corinth because they once again are querulous and starting trouble, and they kick out their elders from the church at Corinth, and uh, Clement, in the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, uh, the bishops of Rome have to write and say, you're out of order, you can't do that. And so the Corinthians have a really hard time with this concept of unity, and Paul, we can see from the language of this, this Paul seems to be causing himself to identify with the church at Corinth. So he says things like, um, you have grieved me, the people who give me joy are the people who I grieve, so I can't have joy. He says that if anyone has forgiven, has hurt me, he hasn't hurt me, he's actually hurt you. And you see this union. You say, Well, if if you forgive someone, then I forgive him through you. And so Paul is getting at this concept of unity, that there is a unity that he and the church at Corinth shares and the reason why he's writing the letter is because he wants to preserve that union. And I find that to be so different from my concept of joy. When I think about what makes me happy, when I think about working for someone's joy, I never think about the unity of the church. Uh, I, I never really think about the church, I'll think about someone's personal needs, but I'll never really think about the church, and I think that that is a sub-biblical idea. Um, and so, as we, as we look at this, well before we look at this, I want to take a look at some other passages, because as you can see from my handling of the scripture, I have gotten this idea of unity and joy by virtue of implication. That I implied from the text that unity and joy are connected. And so I want to take time to look at some scriptures. It always behooves us to um, find explicit teaching that affirms the truths that we find implicitly in other places in scripture. Because a whole bunch of people can say, Oh well honey, you know it's in there. It's between the lines. You just gotta read between the lines and then it ain't in there. And so you have to you have to watch. And so, if you will, if you're tracking with me in your Bibles, um, John 15, verse 10, says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my command, that you love one another, as i have loved you notice that jesus connects keeping his command with joy and the command that he gives them to keep is to love one another and he says if you keep that commandment your joy that comes from me will be full okay philippians the second chapter starting at the first verse says if there be any encouragement in christ any comfort from love also, to the interests of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to the wonderful Carmen Christi. Um, and then if we turn to First Thessalonians, the second chapter, it says this, starting at the 17th verse, For you are our glory and our joy. Now, if you'll notice, uh, there are, this is a connection in each of these passages between the, the love that Christians have, the concord that Christians have, the communion that Christians have, and the joy that we derive from it. And I could go on trying to explain this, but I don't have that much time. And so, um, I just wanted to kind of demonstrate that this isn't just something that I pulled out the side of my head. Um, And so I want to ask the question, if this is true, that the unity of the church and working for the unity of the church brings joy to the people of God, uh, I have three questions that I want to ask. And I hope that I will answer them somewhat satisfactorily. First of all, I want to know, what is Christian unity? Second of all, why should the unity of the church bring us joy? And third, how does one work uh, for uh, the unity of the church? What does it look like to work for joy and unity in the church? And so we'll start with, um, what is Christian unity? I grew up, uh, some of you might know, before I was charismatic, uh, which I started going to a charismatic church at age 12, before that, um, I went to uh, church. churches of the denomination called Christian Methodist Episcopal. And so they had Methodist and, and Episcopal traditions. And because of that, we would say the Apostles' Creed every week, every Sunday. And there was a phrase which I never really understood as I was younger. We would say things like, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Or, in the Nicene Creed, it says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, uh, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is also worshipped and glorified. He has spoken by the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We, uh, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of the sins and life in the world to come. Amen. And so what, what, do, what do the writers of these creeds, what did they mean when they said uh, the communion of the saints? What did they mean by the oneness of, um, of the church? Uh, It's something that escapes us, and it was something that was a definition that was very hard to find. I looked all over the internet, and I don't have a lot of access to too many books, and I could not find a definite definition to the unity of the church, but the closest I came to was a quote from John Stott. Uh, It says, "...the Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross." and the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, a Eucharistic community, ceaselessly offering to God, through Christ, the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. The Christian life is an unending festival. The festival we keep now that our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed for us is a joyful celebration of his presence together with the spiritual feasting upon it. Or as First Corinthians 10 says, Verses 14-17, through Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Our unity is the filial affection which we share with the people of God from all walks of life, and therefore it is Catholic, who have been drawn to the table of the Lord to feast on the flesh of Christ, and therefore it is holy, which has been presented to us through his sacred word. And therefore, because the word that is brought to us, um, that tells us about Christ, comes from his apostles, it is apostolic. The unity of the church is something that is not a form. There are lots of people who consider unity to be what we would consider a lockstep unity. So in Roman Catholicism, the unity of the church is wrought by having the one episcopate. You have the pope at the top, and he kind of governs everything by a top-down approach. And that is supposed to be what consists of our unity together. And it, it gives the semblance of unity, but functionally, uh, you can find Catholics who have all kinds of diverging beliefs on uh, matters of faith, like like important matters of faith. And though they ascribe to be under the one Apostolic See, there's lots of fractures, and so there's not the unity is not one of of government in the sense of church government. And you have other communions, Protestant communions, uh, the Lutherans, the the Episcopalians and the uh, Methodists got together and they created what's called the Common Lectionary. And the Common Lectionary is really cool because it, it has all of these Bible scriptures and you go through the Bible, you preach through the Bible or read the Bible in um, in three years, I believe it is. And you have... Um, all of these priests all over the world, from all walks of life, preaching from the same gospel text, preaching from the Old Testament text. Even some people go as far as to, they have hymns that are suggested for every Sunday. And so you'll have all over the world people singing the same hymn. And that's really cool. There is actually also a a holiday, I can't remember the name of the holiday, but it's to recognize uh, that communion is being taken Um, All across the world, from the beginning of Greenwich time, all the way through the day, you have people taking communion and remembering the body and the blood of Christ. And, And that sacramental union, as John Stott pointed out, is a part of our unity together. But the formality of union is not what unites us. The union that we have primarily is not an external union. The union union that we have primarily is an invisible, internal union that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. It is us being brought together by the truth of the Gospel. And and that's the problem with these other forms of unity, that they're external, uh, they're outside of us, but you can have people who are so separated uh, by doctrinal issues. So your idea of justification are completely different. Your idea about the authority of scriptures are completely different. You can have people who take communion who don't even believe in Jesus. And so this formal unity is not a true unity. I was listening while studying to to, to teach this lesson. I was listening to R.C. Sproul. and He was talking about how he had uh, been approached by this group of people who were really excited about the charismatic gifts. And you had people from all different denominations—Roman Catholic and Pentecostal and Baptist—and they just said, "Oh, we just have this overwhelming unity. We just have this overwhelming unity, and it's so powerful." And uh, sprawl asked, "So you have this unity, uh, uh, and how do you feel about justification?" And he said within five minutes, these people were at one another's throats. Because the unity which we ought to experience should not be an extrinsic unity. The unity should be a fundamental unity of truth. And so there are things that we consider to be essential to the gospel which unite the people of God. And that when we circle around those realities, they unite us. Because the spirit in me that cries Abba Father is the same spirit in you who cries Abba Father. And we have union in that. And so why is this unity important? I think the most Important reason why this unity is important is because Christ died uh, for the unity of the church. If you read John 17, he says, "...I am presenting to you, Father, all that you have given me out of the world." And he says this again, that my desire, God, is that these people, my disciples, would be one, just as you and I are one. And if the the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous avails much, how much more does the effectual fervent prayer of the only righteous one avail? And so... Um it's very important cuz Christ died to secure the unity of the church. Secondly, the community of Christ is the primary um arena where Christ has ordained that the joy of the Christian should be. And this is this is on why it's functionally important because um Let's see here. I'm trying to think. On Thursday, I tried to bring up sports ball, but it didn't work out very well because I know absolutely nothing about sports ball. But if you go to a restaurant and you really enjoy the food, there is an enjoyment that happens when you come to a person and... um you're telling them about this restaurant and then they go and eat and then they enjoy it. And there is an increase, I, I hope you guys understand what I'm talking about, but there is an increase of joy that happens that just overflows when you enjoy something and they enjoy something. And, and that is what the, the unity of Christianity brings. That that what a joy of a Christian is, what the joy of the Christian is, is Christ. What our most precious uh, treasure is is Christ, and that's why it really perplexes me that some people can have your best friends, your five best friends, think of your five best friends. If those people aren't people who love Jesus. Like your top five people that you have communion with are people who are enemies of God. That says something about your heart. That's something that is broken. That's something that is not right. Because how can you have fellowship and union with someone who despises, neglects, and abominates that which you ought to consider your highest treasure? Or the people who know your most intimate struggles are people who don't know the Lord, but your life is, um, but your life is completely cut off from the people who know God and are filled with His Spirit. God has ordained that the main avenue of joy, the primary avenue where the Christian derives his joy, joy through being sanctified, joy through being disciplined, joy through being challenged, joy through being preached to, joy through seeing sanctification in other believers, joy through challenging other believers, that God has ordained, uh, that God has ordained uh, for the main source of joy in our hearts. That's why the greatest thing that happens is when someone that we love who doesn't love Jesus comes to know Christ, because now I get to share my joy with them. And so that is why um, it is important that we work for the unity of the church. And when I say the unity of the church... I don't mean, let me see how much time I have here, because I think I went long on uh, Thursday. Ah, we're good. Um, The unity of the church is not, I'm not talking about the unity that exists, because there are two ways that we can understand the church. There's the invisible church, and there's the visible church and everybody loves the visible church the invisible church because the invisible church is all God's elect people from the beginning of the world from Adam all the way until whoever is the last person to be saved uh, before the millennium, all God's people at all ages, that's the invisible church. And we love that because it's so amorphous. And, oh, honey, I'm in the invisible church. And, oh, I'm just the church. And hallelujah. And I just don't, we don't even need to go to church because we're just, we're just in the love of the Lord. And I'm just going to read my Bible under a tree. And it's just going to be wonderful. And, and if you're reading your Bible under a tree, that is wonderful if that's your thing. But that's not the church. You're not the church. The church is not an individual. The word "church" refers intrinsically, by its its etymological nature, as a people, and so uh, but, and that's why we don't really like what we call the visible church. The visible church is the orderly, external um, community of the saints in the local in the local church, the local body. That's Sunnybrook Christian Church. That's um, i to think of some other churches in town. That's the other churches in town that faithfully preach the gospel, that faithfully administer the sacraments. That is, uh, that's what the church is. And we don't like that because usually, now people can make the excuse, well, the church, honey, is so corrupt, and the church is just this, and the church is just that, because, of course, you have it all together, and the church is just full of hypocrites, because, of course, you're not a hypocrite. Um, but... Uh, um, We don't like it, I think, mainly because we don't want to submit under authority that God has set in the church. We love the amorphous, oh honey, I can just be a part of the invisible church because it's just a wonderful time. Because you don't have to submit under anybody's authority and you don't have anybody to call you out on your mess because you have your own little private interpretation of the Bible, and you have your own little private uh, time of worship watching TBN on Sunday instead of dealing with real people in whom the real Spirit of God is working, in whom the real power of God through His Word is working, in whom Christ is working to bring them to salvation. And that is a joyful experience, but it is a difficult experience, and we shy away from it because we don't want God to work on us through his people and that is a pride issue I'm just maybe well I gotta be talking to myself cause I'm just in my kitchen but I, I maybe I'm just talking to myself um so there's that for you so I'm about to close but um let me stop in my my lesson with um what are the practical Elements and means by which we can discharge this uh, joyous unity uh, that we see, and these I'm taking from the text of 2 Corinthians here. The first is discernment. Uh, Paul, I love this in Paul, the section that says, I'm not going to lord this over you, uh, but I'm going to work for your joy. I love that because Paul. When I read this, I thought of a a spectrum because so many people don't know how to work with the spirit of God to like discern how to act in um in a specific situation so there are people who only know how to go spanish inquisition westboro baptist church always on level 10 always attacking people always putting people down you have no discernment as to when to speak as to how to speak and and it is a lording over your faith moment because paul isn't saying that i'm not lording over your faith because i don't have the authority paul absolutely had the authority to lord over the faith of the Corinthian people in some measure, and we could talk about that at another time but but that was not paul's goal. Paul discerned because he had no problem with making commands and decrees, but just like in the, in the in the book of philemon philemon he um he Trust the work of the Holy Spirit. And he leaves people to the work of the Holy Spirit. And he suggests the truth and says, I I trust that God is going to work here. And so there are people who are always on level ten, and then there are people who, and I think there are more people in our culture who are at a level zero. You're like, well, I just want to work for your joy, honey. I just, I just don't want you to be angry, and I just want you to be really comfortable. And so I'm just gonna we just gonna put some reclining chairs in the church, and we, we're, we're gonna talk about the blessed life today, and we're gonna give you some popcorn, and we're gonna give you some Starbucks coffee, and it's gonna be a powerful time, hallelujah. But but if there's never the challenge, in neither of these scenarios, in neither of these extreme instances, does it take the Holy Spirit? It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to go off on people, and it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to never challenge people. And Paul has no, no problem with challenging people, even though he, he says, I'm not going to lord the your faith at this time. He has no problem challenging people, because my second point is censure. This is how we work for the joy of people. And people really don't like this censure issue, to call somebody out, to tell somebody that they're wrong, to demand their repentance, to put somebody out of the church. Uh, Paul understands, and we know this from 1 Corinthians, but also from this passage, the church here in 2 Corinthians um, had, in Corinth, had put uh whoever this disorderly brother there 's some uh, different understandings of who that is, but this disorderly brother had been put out of the church such that he was overwhelmed with sorrow, and paul doesn 't say you should have never put him out of the church. you should have never done that. that was a terrible thing, and look he 's sad now, and how dare you he doesn 't say that he he, he says it 's enough you 've done enough, which almost is a commendation of what they're doing you 've done the right thing by putting out this disorderly brother and there comes a time where if you have a friend in your life, if you have a roommate and you know that um, that he is not living as as, as uh, Peter Paul says to Peter in Galatians if he 's not walking straight in accordance with the gospel, it is your job if your roommate is a believer to call him to repentance and to walk through the process that Jesus and Paul has given us as to church discipline to, to come to him and, and, and challenge him and beg him and plead him for repentance and then to go to people if he doesn't repent go to other believers and plead for his repentance and if he doesn't repent then go to the elders and plead for his repentance and then if he doesn't repent set him before the church and then put him out that is working for a person's joy. Because what does Paul say? It might be a momentary affliction of embarrassment, but at the end of the day, if he repents, oh, what a joyous and glorious occasion that will be. And I am probably went over just like I went over on Thursday, so here are my last two points. Forgiveness is a very important uh, issue. In, in this text especially, Paul says, um, you know, if this person... Uh, when you forgive him, you ought to forgive him. If he has repented, um, forgive him. I remember in a church, uh, that in one church I went to, there was a pastor who had a lady who had kind of started messing the church and she left. And then she came back and everyone was, oh, well, we're so glad you came back. And, um, but when I was talking to the pastor later on, he was saying, Oh, you can, we received her back, and it's great that she repented. But now, since she has kind of sown discord, now we feed her with a long handled spoon. And that is not if someone comes in repentance we have no power to judge the heart and I can't say I cannot see if your repentance is genuine and we have no right to wait and see if your repentance is genuine we give you all of the rights and privileges that the Bible tells us we should give you and we embrace you with the full love because you know what Jesus doesn't feed you with a long-handled spoon after you leave him and come back so why would you do someone else like that? And that also just comes with a You need to just get off your high horse and humble yourself. Because if Jesus can forgive, okay, well, let me just close. Um, And the last way that we work for um, the unity in the church, from Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 2, is restoration. That when a person... um, When a person repents and we extend forgiveness to him, we work hard to make sure that that person is restored. We work hard to fuel that person with every resource we could give him or her so that they can excel um, and so that they won't be overwhelmed with sorrow. We want to work for the joy of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and and there becomes a difficulty. And as we, as you reflect over this passage and this lesson, I want you to consider because the way that you know, and I'm about to close the way that you know that you have been tricked by the devil. That we know, that I know, because I'm not, I'm not exempt. The way that. I can know and you can know that you have been tricked by the devil is that if you can hold on to your sin and be severed from the church, and that's easier for you than to being severed from your sin and cleaving to the people of God. If Scott or Drew or Rachel had to come to you and say, you know, you're not welcome at the table anymore, Uh, you know, we've been calling you to repentance and you just can't, and we just can't do this anymore, would you rather bow up against the Word of God and cleave to your sin or would you flee from your sin and cleave to the people of God and the Word of God? And I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us to be people who cherish the not just the universal body, not just the idea of the church perfected in glory at the end time, but that visible church, that visible expression of the church. And I pray that you would be united with a church and work for the joy of other believers because I trust God that He will work for your joy. Ultimately, on the last day, but in this life as well. And it will be difficult, and it will be messy, and it will hurt, and you're going to want to leave, but there is joy unspeakable and full of glory when you work with God for the sanctification of His people. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank You for Your promise to Your Son where You said, Ask of me and I will give You the nations for Your inheritance. And I thank You that You are giving a people from all over the world so that every kingdom, tribe, tongue, nation will come before Your Son and sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and has redeemed us to God by His blood. May we be people who strive for one another's joy, not a worldly joy that fades and perishes, but an everlasting joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, so that you might present us faultless before your throne with exceeding great joy. To you be glory, honor, dominion, and power in the church, now and forever. Amen.